This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Welcome back to the Scripture Study Project. We are here in 2023. Um, we didn't know we would be back. Yeah. So <laughs> welcome we're welcome. <laughs> I was going to say we're welcoming back you and ourselves because at the end of 2022, when we ended our study of the Old Testament, um, we knew that we were ready to move on from our weekly episodes of following along with a Come Follow Me study. We have done now five years of weekly episodes, which I am kind of shocked that we did that. Um, and it was a lot of hard work sometimes to keep that consistency. But um, with a little bit of, I guess, I don't know what to say, sorrow <laughs> or sadness, we won't be doing the weekly episodes this year. Um, but also with a lot of excitement for us, because I think we felt like there was something more that we could do um, as we debated even just, you know, calling it quits and being done for now. But we just were ready to maybe go on a different, deeper level. And the word I kept thinking of was slow it down a little bit for us to have more time to study, to connect with you in different ways and really to study things that were meaningful to us in context with the study of the New Testament and maybe branching out a little from there. You know, when we started this five years ago, the six years ago, six years ago, about well, five. five, five years ago, <laughs> one of the main reasons we started, if you remember, was we, we felt like the people weren't talking about scripture. There just wasn't a lot of scriptural literacy. And so we started that first book of Mormon season thinking, well, we can talk about scripture on a podcast and now, here we are five years later, and we're all talking about Scripture on a and regular basis. so many podcasts, so many YouTube channels, and that's just, a, just really, really cool. Yeah, a lot of great resources. So we thought, well, what comes next then for us, um, and what comes next for, for our study of the Scriptures? Over the past five years, or the past four years, as we've studied along with Come, Follow Me, we've become really fluent in the four books of Scripture. Now we're starting again in the New Testament. But one of the things that we're really passionate about is that scriptures are not the ends, they're the means. Um, the goal of reading the scriptures isn't to read and understand the scriptures. The goal of reading and studying the scriptures is to grow closer with God. And so what we want to do this episode is shift the focus of our podcast from a weekly study of that week's scripture study block. Even though we do have that season available, if you want to go back and listen, we do have a New Testament weekly study. Um, I think you said it starts in... Starting in episode 51. Um, so it was our season two where we went through and studied the New Testament. And I actually have gone back. I know a few of you have. I've had some messages of like, oh, I found your, you know, I've gone back and listened, asking us if we've, if we're going to record again this year. And so I'm glad that you've, some of you have been able to find those. And I actually went back and listened to some too, just to get an idea of like, oh no, people are going to listen to those things from long ago. Um, and part of the reason, Zach, I haven't told you this, part of the reason I wanted to at least do an episode here and there is because, or have this season keep going, 
is I needed to redeem myself from the last five, from four years ago. <laughs> Not accurate at all. I was really excited. We were always very excited. Very excited. And now we aren't as excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are. But I think slowing down is kind of the, the word that yeah. I'm thinking. And I'm we're really excited about what we have for this year. It won't be as frequent, but I think it's going to be... I don't want to say more meaningful because I think we put stuff into it, but it'll it'll have a different it fits feel for us right now. So what we're doing is instead of focusing on a weekly study of the Come Follow Me block, we are focusing on questions that are central to our relationship with God. Now these are questions that either we have or have had, or questions that that uh, we'll draw from things that we hear from you as listeners. And each month, we will study a question using the scriptures from that month's Come Follow Me and other places to really begin a study of that question. Uh, as always in our podcast, our goal is not to be the highlight of your scripture study experience. It's to be the beginning of or to provide an additional frame or an assistance to. Uh, our hope is that you finish listening to an episode that we've done and you walk away excited for your own study and that what you learn in your own study far surpasses anything that we might share. We'll be posting our episodes every month on the first of the month, and they'll be a little bit longer, though we do know that one of the things we've heard from so many people is that you enjoyed having shorter episodes, which I said as we were getting ready. I don't know if that's a good thing. People saying, like, <laughs> we can only take 20 minutes of you, and then that's it. For me, <laughs> our episodes are only 15 minutes long, because I, like, Listen double, to my double speed. speed. <laughs> so it's very convenient. So, but we will still hold them short. We will not have episodes longer than 45 minutes. But we're giving ourselves a little bit of flexibility to dive a little bit deeper, go a little bit broader, explore something a little bit more um, because we're only doing it once a month. So hopefully you can handle 40-ish minutes of us. Um, if not, then yeah, do two times speed and, and um, cut it down. And, cut it down. So. <laughs> and to be clear, as we've talked about these questions, we really wanted to make them applicable to what we're studying in the, the weeks of Come Follow Me surrounding the first of the month. And that's what we've done, um, mostly been studying in the beginning chapters of all of the Gospels. And we'll probably go a few different places in here and there, but we wanted to base it around that just to make it a little more applicable for where most of us or many of us are studying. Yeah. So our first question this episode actually comes from the Come Follow Me block for this month. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which we're studying a little bit later on in February. And the question, well, the, the statement that spurs the question is at the very end of Matthew chapter 5. It's a Sermon on the Mount, a very well-known verse, where Jesus says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the question, a really natural question that comes from that verse is, Do I really have to be perfect? And I've heard this question or this verse discussed in a lot of different settings, and there seems to be a lot of hedging about it. When people talk about it, there's a lot of, well, we don't really, and it's not really what it means. And I even heard someone recently say, God really doesn't expect us to be perfect. He just expects us to try our hardest. The only problem with all of those answers is even though they might hint at some of the nuance that comes with this verse, we have here the Son of God and the Lord of the Old Testament, saying pretty unequivocally that we are to be perfect. So maybe this cuts our episode short, but the answer to the question of do I really have to be perfect is yes, we do. No unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God. In order for us to live with God, we have to be like God. We have to be perfect. 
However, what we may miss is what perfect actually means and how to realistically pursue perfection. Uh, at least that kind of perfection. So what we're going to do in this episode is first address that the definition of perfect. And then we want to look at a couple of examples of people pursuing that kind of perfection as a way to begin your study so that as you study this month, you can put yourself in the shoes of the people you're reading about and maybe um, feel like this month's study helps you become a little bit closer to your Heavenly Father and a little bit closer to that perfect that we'll define here in just a minute. Well, I think of a few reasons why this is relevant. I think one of them is just the idea of um, us coming into the new year and wanting to change and to make new resolutions and, you know, become more perfect, I guess you could say in a different way. I've never set my New Year's resolutions that way, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're trying to become better and... I think that can easily be taken to extremes to one way or another. Um, You know, learning about many people struggling with this idea of perfectionism, of how we need to live certain commandments and how this needs to be done that can cause a lot of pain with um, people suffering from scrupulosity where they're having this really heavy idea of religious perfection. Um, I think it shows itself in a lot of ways when um, we can compare ourselves to the progress of someone someone else when we feel, feel like we're not measuring up in certain ways. Um, and so I think it's important to understand, and I love, I love being able to study the New Testament in this way because we do get to see real people in action who are trying to follow Jesus in really similar ways that we are. Um, And so I think it humanizes that, the steps and the process to this perfection. Do we really have to become perfect? You know, I went back and I remembered a talk from Elder Holland. So he gave a talk on this subject in October of 2017. So that would be another fun reference to listen to if this is something that resonates with you. But his talk is Be Ye Therefore Perfect Eventually. And I really liked some of the thoughts that he shared. But I think overall the idea of this idea of perfection is that we include God and that we use this slow idea of repentance and change as part of the process of us becoming this perfect, which, you know, I don't even, I don't even like to say it because I know there, it's just such a loaded word, which is another reason why we thought this would be interesting to study is what does it really mean? Do I really have to become perfect? So... Well, I think let's start there then. Let's let's define what the word perfect means, starting at the smallest level with what it actually means in Matthew 5, verse 48. Um, one of the things that we can get into real trouble with in the scriptures is when we only read one verse and we pull from that verse an idea and then expand that idea beyond the intent of the original verse or the original author of that verse, whether spoken or written. If you go back just a couple of verses before verse 48, um, this is, again, as I mentioned, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that Jesus points out really early on in the Sermon on the Mount is that his disciples, those that are listening to him, he's calling them to be, uh, what he says, more righteous than the Pharisees, which if you're listening to his Sermon on the Mount would have been kind of um, 
fear-inducing because the Pharisees were the paragon of quote-unquote scriptural perfection. They obeyed the law, every jot and tittle, every letter they obeyed, and they prided themselves on that strict obedience. So part of Jesus using the word perfect here is a bit of a play because the Pharisees would have considered themselves perfectly obedient, and yet the perfection that Jesus is describing is very different from them. So when he tells his listeners to be more righteous than the Pharisees or more perfect than the Pharisees, it's obvious that he's not demanding stricter obedience to the specific laws of the uh, Old Testament code, the law of Moses, or the oral tradition. He's asking them to be perfect in a different way. So to start in verse 44, Jesus says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them which hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And then this, which I think is the key to truly understanding verse 48, that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain upon the just and the unjust. And then verse 48 makes a lot more sense. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. At least one implication of Jesus's message in verse 48 isn't, I'm calling you to be completely obedient to every commandment at this moment. It is, I'm calling you to love like your Father in heaven loves, to love your enemy, to pray for those that despitefully use you, to think kindly even of the people that do not treat you kindly. This would have been a very shocking idea to these uh, his Jewish listeners because uh, they have grown up with stories of them being othered from groups that persecuted them or they themselves even leading crusades against others. There's been a war in Israelite history for thousands of years. And for Jesus to now come and say, the time for that is done. We are now to love our enemies. We are supposed to love the Romans and the Gentiles. And of course, he's going to go on and model this throughout his ministry. So that one, I think, contextual idea helps us understand that word perfect in verse 48. Um, in fact, one of my favorite quotes, this was quoted recently in General Conference, but it's originally from Marion G. Romney. Um, when talking about the the celestial kingdom and requirements to get to the celestial kingdom. He just said this, service, which is love for others, service is not something we endure on this earth so we can earn the right to live in the celestial kingdom. Service is the very fiber of which an exalted life in the celestial kingdom is made. In other words, are we required to love as heavenly father loves? in order to live in the celestial kingdom? The answer is yes, because that's what makes the celestial kingdom celestial. It's the very fiber of which a celestial life is built. What else uh, could we experience in a world where everybody is committed to loving everybody else? I really like the start to this because if we're gonna start somewhere with being perfect in one area, <laughs> which maybe we won't even be perfect in one area, let's be real. But trying to perfectly love yeah. feels like a really great place to start. Well, and that's that's the core of Jesus's message, right? To, to try and convince people that they should shift their focus from 
this meticulous obedience to the 613 rules of the oral tradition and all of the commandments and everything. He's trying to shift their focus from that to prioritizing a love of God and a love of others. And remember, he says, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. If you can work at being truly loving to God and truly loving to others, so many other things come connected to that. And so I think this is a beautiful way to approach perfection is to focus on perfectly loving others. Another perspective that's helpful is to understand that the word used as, or the word translated as perfect in verse 48, teleos, which is the Greek word, doesn't actually mean flawless. It means to be completed or fully finished. Our, our footnote in the King James translation and our uh, LDS King James translation helps us there. Um, the idea being not that you will be flawless right now, but that you are a work in progress and that you are to continue that work until it is fully finished or fully complete. Um, notice that in this verse, Jesus commands us to be perfect even as the Father is perfect. When he comes to the Nephites after his resurrection and ascension, he will quote this same verse to him, but he'll add something. He will tell the Nephites, be therefore perfect even as I and your Father in heaven are perfect. Meaning that in this verse, even though Jesus is flawless, he is not fully finished or fully complete. He's not yet resurrected. And when he comes to the Nephites, he now is the full essence of the word perfect. And so when he talks to us, it can't mean that he wants us to be flawless like him because he doesn't include himself in that verse. The idea here is to be fully complete. President Nelson, and we'll link this talk in our show notes as well, describes this kind of perfection and he pulls out that Greek root and he shows that the, the preface, tele, the same word we use in telephone or television, it means distance. It means that this is something that is going to be a long process. Are we expected to be perfect? Yes, but as you mentioned from Elder Holland, eventually, certainly not right now. And it's not flawlessness, it's completeness. Well, this message, this aspect of it's really resonating with me, um, especially as... I'm almost 40. I'm <laughs> almost, almost 40. <laughs> I keep telling Zach, I'm practically 40. I'm only 38, but I'm practically 40. That's almost, almost 40. And so then we've decided I'm basically 40 and he's basically 30 because he's a couple <laughs> years younger than me. So I'm not going to give him anything on this. I'm milking the 40 thing. But what I think that as I've approached this kind of this milestone, I'll, maybe that's partly why I'm having a midlife crisis is because you're halfway almost midlife, <laughs> almost crisis. midlife crisis because I'm almost 40. Um, but this feeling of here I am at this age and I thought that I'd feel maybe more complete or more perfect <laughs> or more fully finished anything. Instead, I think, oh no, I'm almost 40 and I still feel like me. Mm -hmm. And that can get really frustrating as you're wanting to feel like you've accomplished something. Even even with the podcast, I think this is another thing because I remember beginning the podcast and studying and feeling like, man, I am going to be so smart at the end of this because I've never put so much effort into studying the scriptures in the way we have the past few years. And um, I can tell you what, I don't really feel that much smarter. I actually feel 
I'm not going to say dumber, but I feel like I know less. But maybe that's another method. I I feel expanded. I don't feel smarter. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's maybe that's part of being fully finished is that idea of I feel more open. I don't feel smarter. <laughs> but that's probably a good sign that, as I say it, I'm realizing like that's probably a good sign that you know. Because I know many people that study into subjects and, you know, doctorate degrees after doctorate degrees. And usually it's, I actually don't know more. I feel like the more you realize, yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the more that you, that you age, you feel like you don't know anything Mm -hmm. either because you realize really how little you do know and maybe how, how fully you need help. Yeah. Well, in fact, that's the third thought on this word perfection that I think is most helpful. Um, when, if, if, perfect means to be completed or finished. It puts us in the role of the potter's clay, to borrow the idea from Jeremiah, where we are something that is being worked on, but we are not the most powerful nor even the most interested person in our own growth and development. There is a God on the other side who is infinitely more powerful, infinitely more interested. In fact, it is his work and glory to bring about our eternal life, which is to bring about our perfection. And I think for me, whenever I felt downhearted by my own inadequacies or I felt frustrated by my lack of ability to become perfect, it's because I have lost track of the fact that God is the potter and I am the clay, that he is the one working on me. And he's far more powerful. I, I'm sure I mentioned this on our podcast before, but I tell my students all the time, we have uh, the king and creator of the universe working on us, and he's pretty good at getting what he wants. So outside of you stiff-arming God and completely rebelling and saying, I don't want that, He's going to continue to work and grow and work on you to help you grow and develop. I love you. You do say that a lot, but it's a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. Maybe that means I like <laughs> it's it. Okay. I love this from the Doctrine and Covenants. This is section 76 where we get all of our doctrinal details on the celestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdom. So I love this. In that place where we're talking about the different kingdoms and who goes where, notice verse 40. And this is the gospel, the glad tidings, which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us. That he, meaning Jesus, came into the world to be crucified for the world, to bear the sins of the world, to sanctify the world, and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness, that through him all might be saved, whom the Father had put into his power and made by him, who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. Notice the use of the word all. Um, We have, I think, historically and maybe still problematically, such a narrow view of, of how good God is at being able to help his children progress along the path towards eternal life. Um, years and years ago, uh, Elder McConkie, far before my time, uh, spoke to a group of religious educators. And he, this is Elder McConkie, who's very doctrinally conservative said, you tell your students that far more of our father's children will be exalted than we think. In another setting, he said, I would suppose that I am now looking out upon a group of men and women who will go to the celestial kingdom. Who can count the number of saved beings in eternity? 
Our God, who is triumphant in all battles against the forces of evil, will surely be victorious in the numbers of his children who will be saved. His son, Brother Joseph Fielding McConkie, who taught at BYU for decades, said, Of those who kept their first estate and gained the privilege of being born into mortality, the vast majority will return to the presence of their heavenly parents to receive the fullness of their divine inheritance. Doesn't perfection change, or our emotions around perfection change when we fully embrace the idea that, yes, we have to become perfect, perfectly loving and fully finished. But we are not the only ones working on that. And our heavenly parents are going to be successful with the vast majority of their children in helping them become that. Then perfection becomes something that's exciting to know that God is working on me to help me develop. And isn't that the most important part is to not forget that Jesus paid the price for all of this. He's willing and already has done all this for us. It's his grace that gets us through. Yeah, in fact, one final note on that section 76 reference. Um, those verses that Jesus saves all come before the verses about the celestial kingdom. It's almost as if the, the organization of that chapter is to suggest there's not this whole huge giant list of requirements we have to meet to make the celestial kingdom. The requirement is to follow Christ. And if we will follow him, he will save all that are put into his hand. And then because we are followers of Christ, we will also be loving and obedient and kind and repentant and forgiving and charitable. But something changes in us when we switch those from requirements for salvation to the very characteristics that someone who is a disciple of Christ exhibits. I think that allows us a lot more grace, not only for other people, as we talked about before, loving others is a key, but also giving us, giving ourselves the grace that we need when we mess up or when we get to be 40 and we don't, aren't as cool as we thought we might be. Um, but to really use that to, for kindness to ourselves too. So with that in mind, the next question we want to ask is how does it happen? If being completed and fully finished, loving towards others, uh, and allowing God to continue to work on us, if that's really the goal, uh, how do we get there? How do we appropriately pursue that kind of perfection? And what we want to do is just provide a few examples we found from our study that might kind of spark some ideas in your mind. And then as you study this month, hopefully you'll find additional examples that resonate personally with you and maybe can provide some ideas for your own growth and development. And I think this takes it back a little bit too, to that idea of how how we can change and how we can become become that and set those New Year's resolutions that really help us feel not the perfection or the fully complete, but that we're on the right path. So I'm going to start with a story of one of the apostles. Um, one of the things I've loved to study in these first in this first month is meeting the different apostles that come to Jesus' disciples that come to follow him. And so this comes from John 2. And where we are introduced for the first time to Nathaniel. So it says this, starting in John 1, verse 44, is Philip is a friend of Nathaniel, and he tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And that's when Nathaniel asks, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip tells him to come and see. 
And then I'm going to read starting in verse 47. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, just a little side note that we're not going to hear much more about Nathanael. Nathanael is only called Nathanael as one of the disciples in John. Um, and in the other Gospels, he's referred to as Bartholomew. And there's not many other stories about him other than his name listed as the disciples. And part of that is uncertain, but also Bartholomew could be his surname or his what they would have used as maybe more of a last name or a family name. Um, so that's who most people believe Nathaniel to be as one of the disciples that you'll see later on. Um, but this is really the only story we get of him, of his interactions with Jesus. And I thought, you know, as, as we talk about how to change and, and what we need to change, I, I love the idea of this word that kind of comes up a few times, and that is um, Philip's telling Nathaniel to come and see. You need to come and see. And then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. And then Jesus says again, like, I saw you under the fig tree. So first off, Jesus calls out to him who he is. When he sees Nathaniel, he says, you are someone without deceit. And then again, he says, well, I actually already know you. I've already seen you. Um, and I don't really know the context behind that fig tree. And we don't know. For, I mean, fig trees uh, symbolized Israel. And so this could have been Nathaniel sitting under you know, a fig tree in his garden or somewhere else, but definitely somewhere out of sight, out of visibility. So when Jesus says, I saw you, he, he means more than just, oh, I saw you over there. It's something, something deeper. It feels like this I loved the idea of this, that Jesus really saw who he was. He said, he said, I see you because he gave him a, a really high compliment. You're someone without deceit. And I like to think of it, this is me putting a little bit of emotion and my own thoughts into the story, but um, Nathaniel, maybe he was in a really hard moment in his life under the fig tree when Jesus saw him, or he he remembers the specific moment of like, I wasn't the person I wanted to be when Jesus saw me under the fig tree. And here he is paying this high compliment to me of being a man without deceit. He really knows my heart, even if my actions don't fully show who I want to be. Someone sees me, someone appreciates me. And I think Jesus did this for a lot of people. And, you know, cool thing he can do it for us too. Um, so the first thing I thought of was if we're looking for principles or actions that can lead us to feeling more complete and more whole is that it takes first off someone to see you, someone to understand you. And that's Jesus. Hopefully you have other people in your life that can see you in kind ways. And hopefully even more that we can learn through stories like this, um, to see ourselves with realize, be, be upfront about yourself. Don't be, be someone without deceit that you see yourself in real. You don't lie to yourself about how some of your flaws, but also on the other side of that, that you're really kind to yourself, that we can see ourselves. 
I guess, with real but kind eyes, maybe how God sees us. Mm-hmm. I think if we're not seeing ourselves and being a little bit real with, with our flaws, we can't change. But also we can't change if, if we're being hard on ourselves, if we aren't being kind. And I might even say that might be the first step. What do you think? I think so. I mean, this, I love this message of the heart. I loved as we've talked about this, uh, and you mentioned other examples. If you pay attention to what Jesus does when he meets individuals for the first time, he'll often follow this same pattern where he will tell them something about themselves that they may not themselves yet believe. Um, just a couple of verses before this, he tells Simon, I'm going to call you Cephas, which is a stone. The only difficulty there is Simon is not a rock steady unwavering person he's all over the place in the gospels he jumps out of boats and he chops off ears and he denies the savior so this isn't Jesus describing something Simon knows about himself this is Jesus saying I see something in you that you may not yet see yourself and what a better way to begin change than by having God say this is who you can become let me tell you or show you who you really are and if God tells you that how much more motivating or maybe even simpler is it to work towards that vision because you have the confidence of God. Mm-hmm. And I loved this just this morning I was reading in um, and up this upcoming week is about the temptation of Jesus. And it had a line in there that said Jesus was able to withstand the temptations in part, if not mostly, because he knew who he was. And I think if we have that same confidence and giving ourselves that same, remembering it that it's, I mean, I do it too, It's, but it's it's just not worth it to be mean to yourself when you're trying to make changes. Um, and I know that's a hard one. The other thing I was reading something about that briefly mentioned that scholars still wonder about how many scholars in the Christian theology world, wonder why it took these disciples so long to really, really understand who Jesus was, even witnessing the miracles and even having these interactions with them that moved them to become one of his, one of his followers, almost right off, right when they meet him. Um, And I think it's in part because it's hard to change. Even when you have signs and you have these experiences, humans take a long time to change. Our hearts can be a little bit stubborn, which is kind of in contrast to the next couple examples um, that I thought of as we're trying to change. And right after this, ironically, as I was reading, was that in John 2 is one of my favorite miracles. And that is when Jesus turns the water to wine. When Mary asks him, hey, we ran out of wine and we really need you to work your miracles here. Um, And he does it. And the word that appeared almost always in these type of miracles is, and there it was. And all of a sudden the water was changed and everything was perfect. It was a perfect miracle. Immediately. Right, Immediately. The word, the King James. Yes. Immediately or straightway the miracle took place. Uh-huh. Or in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm, as I'm reading from this, it's a CSB, a Christian Standard Bible. It was that immediate. And some of the other... Um, stories, some of my other favorite ones, the woman with an issue of blood. It was that moment she was healed. He touches a blind man right after that, and and he's healed as well. And I know that that, for me, can be frustrating. But maybe another principle that we can learn from those is that it's a little bit easier to change things that are physical 
But when it's matters of the heart, when it's us stubborn people, um, it takes time and it takes practice. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes work. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the frustrating part, right? Um, but the, the other thing that I really loved about this, these stories of Mary asking Jesus to turn water to wine, the woman with an issue of blood and the blind man is they were all people that came to Jesus. They approached him and they asked him. Um, and I think that's a really great principle for change that we've already kind of talked about as Zach discussed those points above, is that we need to go to him and approach him when we want to change. I really like that. What I looked at as I studied was what's maybe the next step that comes after we feel seen, after we truly see ourselves. And I was drawn to the story of Nicodemus. I've loved John chapter 3 for some of the great references that are there. We all do. But I had never really focused on Nicodemus as an individual and the way that he grows or changes throughout the gospel narrative. The very beginning of John chapter 3, it says that Nicodemus in verse 2 came to Jesus by night. And then Jesus plays on that in his dialogue with Nicodemus. In verse 19, this is the combination condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That must have been a really poignant moment for Nicodemus where Jesus deliberately calls out the light versus the dark. And here Nicodemus is coming at nighttime. Um, but then Jesus says in verse 21, he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. There is the moment where Jesus identifies for Nicodemus something that he can be. It's almost as if the Lord says to Nicodemus, you came to me at night, but I see in you someone that could be in the light, whose deeds are made manifest. Well, a couple of chapters later in John chapter 7, the Sanhedrin is debating this Jesus of Nazareth. And as they're talking about him, um, the question comes up in verse 48. This is John chapter 7. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? Now that question is uttered kind of in sarcasm, as in none of us believe in Jesus, so he can't really be valid. Then in verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, and John deliberately reminds us, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth. Notice the language there. Nicodemus is talking about knowing what someone does. And Jesus told him back in John chapter 3 that it's only in the light that you can truly identify someone. So Nicodemus is using the same language that was used on him to now defend Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. At the very end of John, John chapter 19, after Jesus' death, uh, in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Then verse 39, there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Um, tr 
tradition, Christian tradition holds that Nicodemus will go on to defend Jesus or that Nicodemus defended Jesus before Pilate and that after this experience where he very openly honors the body of Jesus with spices and with wrapping and buries him, he's deposed from the Sanhedrin. He's a leading member of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee and that he's later baptized by Peter and John and that he ends his life in poverty but completely devoted to Christ. He goes from being this wealthy, uh, acclaimed ruler to being a humble disciple of Christ. And I love that change, whether the Christian tradition is accurate or not. I think the scriptural account is clear enough to show that Nicodemus is a person that changed. And he changed because at the very beginning, Jesus showed him something about himself that maybe he didn't see or didn't recognize yet. And to Nicodemus's credit, he he allowed that change to work on him until he became an apostle, a disciple in the light. And so for me, that's a really comforting story of change to know that both it can happen um, and that it, it takes a little bit of time. And don't you think it's good that there's both? Hmm. You know, sometimes it's frustrating for me to look at those miracles of instant change and think, oh, I want some of those instant changes. Um but it's good to hear those because sometimes that's what we need and sometimes that's what we experience. And sometimes we have a lifelong slow, slow process of change. And even that's okay too, even though it might be frustrating. Yeah, changing a heart takes a little bit longer than changing water to wine. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, that makes me think of this, this quote by President Nelson. Maybe we'll end with this. He says, uh, this is in We Can Do Better and Be Better from General Conference a couple of years ago. Whether you are diligently moving along the covenant path, have slipped or stepped from the covenant path, or can't even see the path from where you are now, I plead with you to repent. Experience the strengthening power of daily repentance, of doing and being a little better each day. When we choose to repent, we choose to change. We allow the Savior to transform us into the best version of ourselves. We choose to grow spiritually and receive joy, the joy of redemption in him. When we choose to repent, we choose to become more like Jesus Christ. My favorite line in that quote is, we allow the Savior to transform us into the best version of ourselves. So to answer the question, do I have to be perfect? Yes. But understand that perfect means finished or fully complete. It means starting with loving others and then allowing the Lord to continue to work on us over the process of years to help us grow and develop and change. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to begin with us seeing ourselves clearly and then allowing the Lord to point to us, to reveal to us what he sees in us. But it's possible. And not only possible, it's probable. And it's an exciting part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for studying with us. We're glad to be back this year. Um, We're looking forward to studying some questions that we already have in mind that we think are relevant right now. Um, But we would also love to hear any questions that you have been wanting to dive deeper into. Maybe you already have some thoughts attached to it that we could share here or use in our study. Um, Of course, we have an email scripture study project at gmail.com and i know that i think i've been promoting in our last you know last new testament i slightly changed our instagram feed to scripture study project instead of the scripture study project 
you can probably find us either way, but I am going to try and be a little better at being active there and updating and talking through these questions a little bit on there as well. So we would love to hear from you. If you have any ideas or questions that we can discuss this year, we would love it. Our plan again is to release episodes on the first of each month and we hope to have you along. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great week or month or day, whatever it is. We'll see you.